Uh, I was watching for a few dollars more last night, and Lee Van Cleef pulls out. What's the? <laughs> yeah. Hey, that's an early NCK. That's exactly what it is. Yeah, he pulls out that stock when he was shooting the gun on the ground, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> Right. Clint's, one of, Clint's one of my heroes. I, I love his movies. So yeah, well, that's that's who I'm named after. All righty. Well, that can't be that. Supposedly, <laughs> I'm related to him. I don't. I don't know. Just you're related to Donald Trump too, aren't you? Donald Trump and Clint Eastwood. You need yeah. to show up at somebody's house at Thanksgiving and say hello. Meet the Pressers with Matt Mallory and Clint Macrow. Brought to you by Public Safety and Education and the Trigger Pressers Union. And now, your hosts. This episode is brought to you by Mountain Man Medical. The right medical training and gear should be accessible to every American. Mantis. Mantis X helps shooters suck less. Meet the Pressers is sponsored by Next Level Training, Saber Red, Cutting Edge Bullets, the USCCA, ASP, Common Sense Self-Defense, and T1 Ammunition. Meet the Pressers is also generously supported by other fine companies, ranges, and our Patreon members. Thank you. Hello and welcome to Meet the Pressers. I'm Matt Mallory and this is my esteemed co-host Clint Macro here. We have a very special guest today and before we get to her, I want to tell you a little bit about the show. We are a show about trigger pressers, pre- people that shoot guns, press triggers, self-defense, pepper spray, all that fun stuff. We do an occasional gear review, uh, political activism, et cetera, et cetera, blow things up, kind of fun stuff like that. So without further ado, Clint, take it away. We haven't blown something up in quite a while, Matt. We're going to have to make sure we get back to doing that. We need to, for sure. So our special guest today is someone that has been very influential in changing how we look at defensive training. Uh, Dr. Alexis Artwall wrote a book back in 1997, I believe, called Deadly Force Encounters. And recently, there's been a second edition that's come out. Uh, She is also, I believe, an instructor with uh, Force Science Institute. And we're very happy to have you on the show, ma'am. Thank you for coming on. Yeah, just a, a brief correction. Okay. I, I about a year ago I retired from training, uh, so I'm not currently training with Force Science, although I still have regular communication with them, and uh, I did I was a trainer for them for quite a few years. Okay, excellent. They'll have to update their website. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us a little bit about uh, Deadly Force Encounters, how that book came about back in 1997. 97 is correct, right? That's when that. 97 is when the first edition came about. And uh, I had been uh, sort of adopted by the officers of the Portland Police Bureau uh, to do traumatic incident debriefings. That how it came about was I met the uh, chaplain back way back when of the Portland Police Bureau. At that time, he was in charge of their mental health services. And I met him at a conference on trauma because I'd done my internship with the San Francisco VA Medical Center and had done a lot of work with uh, combat veterans. Mm-hmm. And uh, so he and I took up a conversation. He said, you know, we're always looking for uh, mental health professionals who can relate to officers and uh, so they can provide these traumatic incident debriefings after they've been involved in shootings or other critical incidents. Would you be interested? And I said, sure. So 
Uh, I started seeing officers and uh, the officers and I hit it off. I, I am a, I'm a military brat. I grew up in the military and I've had lots of, <coughs> excuse me, military brat friends over the years. So the whole military mindset was not foreign to me. And perhaps for that reason, I could uh, definitely relate to the officers. Uh, so my job as a debriefer, whether it's with civilians or officers, is uh, in many ways that of a trainer. Uh, because the vast majority of people subjected to a traumatic incident, especially officers who are trained to deal with these things, they do not develop post-traumatic stress disorder. So I'm not really doing psychotherapy except for the small number of people who will, might need it down the road. So it's primarily about education. This is how the mind operates under stress, what you experience, this is normal, uh, this isn't blah, blah, blah. So I was when I was doing the debriefings, I was somewhat dismayed at the lack of information that the officers had about uh, memory distortion and perceptual distortion and uh, what to expect during the immediate aftermath, the impact it might have on their family members. Uh, so I would educate them and I started developing handouts to give them because. Uh, handouts about selective attention, handouts about memory, handouts about how this might influence you during an investigative interview. And the officers really appreciated it. And then they said, well, you know, I wish I had had all this information before I got involved in my shooting. Would you be willing to come into uh, in-service training and teach it to my fellow officers in case it happens to them? So I said, okay. Uh, so I told some of the officers that I had been working with, oh, guess what, I've, I've been invited to train at in-service training next year. And they said, oh, Doc, you don't want to do that. It's a brutal audience. <laughs> they, they routinely send civilian instructors out of there in tears. Uh, so I thought, that gave me a little bit of pause, but I figured, well, you know, these officers went out and put their lives on the line for me, and the least I can do is go in and put my ego on the line for them. Nice. So, there was some trepidation, but I put together a class on all the things I've been teaching during these debriefings. And when I went in, of course, it was the typical law enforcement audience. Yep. <laughs> you know, you have no idea what impact you're really having on them. Mm -hmm. uh, but what I learned to uh, actually build in some extra time after my class was finished, because uh, as I was walking out to my car, a lot of times there might be one or two officers in the parking lot who might come up and say, hey, Doc, you got a minute? Mm -hmm. And that began the, hey, Doc, you got a minute series of um, brief counseling and education and so on and so forth. So I came to realize that the officers were actually hungry for this information. Yeah. Mm -hmm. it, was, it was completely false that they would not trust a civilian instructor if you knew what you were talking about. I had the same thing when I was working with veterans. People said, oh, you're not gonna be successful working with veterans because you're a woman, you're not a veteran, and you've never been in combat. And I found out very quickly that what the veterans really cared about was, do you care? Do you know what you're talking about? And do you have something that can help me? And once you establish that, you're in. Uh, so, uh, you know, all these sort of stereotypes I had been told about resistant veterans and resistant police officers simply wasn't true. So in-service training went very well. And uh, then I started training some detectives because the detectives would come up and say, 
well, all this stuff on memory and information processing and decision-making, you know who really needs this information are the detectives who are investigating these events, the shootings and the civilian shootings as well. Uh, so I started doing that. And then the officers themselves came to me and said, hey, doc, you know what you really need to do? You need to take those handouts and put them into a book because <laughs> we have buddies in other police departments who will never talk to you, never have yeah. the chance to hear you speak, never come to you for psychotherapy. Nope. And I wish I had a book I could give them, say, here, read this. You'll understand a lot better what's going on. So really... All of this, my whole law enforcement training career, the book, everything was really driven forward by the officers who more or less adopted me once I was willing to offer my services to them. And then, uh, you know, over the past 20 years since the book was published, a lot of uh, updated research has come out. So once I retired from law enforcement training, wasn't traveling around all over the place again, had a little bit more time, that's when I said, okay, Updating this book is long overdue. So uh, Laura and I uh, decided to uh, update all the research and that's why we published the second edition. Now, how did you get hooked up with, with Lauren on, on the book? Was he someone you had worked with prior to that or was the book the beginning of your relationship professionally? Uh, the book was the beginning of the relationship. Uh, Lauren, when I was, uh, I lived in Portland, Oregon and uh, I, I did not work for the Portland Police Bureau. A lot of people think I did, but I, I never worked for them. I was a private practitioner and the Portland Police Bureau was one of my multiple law enforcement clients. Lauren uh, had heard about me providing debriefings for the officer involved shootings. So he contacted me and he said, uh, about the time that the officers were encouraging me to write a book, Lauren contacted me because Lauren is a professional author. If you're familiar with his Amazon page, he's written about 60 books on a wide variety of topics, including fiction. And uh, he was uh, at the time uh, doing writing and he came and said, I'd like to write a book about uh, what, it, what it's like for officers to go through shootings. Would you mind if I interviewed you for my book? And I said, well, it just so happens, uh, I've been encouraged to write a book as well. Uh, how about if we collaborate? Uh, so uh, he was a little reluctant because uh, I'm not sure he had collaborated with anybody before. And, you know, it could be a little dicey, uh, you know, working yeah. with other people and so on and so forth. Uh, but actually, the collaboration went extremely well. I think the book was greatly improved by having us both contribute. <clears throat> and uh, the second collaboration went equally as well. He's actually the reason I was able to connect with you to invite you on the show. I had yeah. reached out to him because I was always very interested in talking to one of you about that book. And I found him on Facebook and connected with him there. And, and I'd mentioned the show and, and he said, well, I don't do, he doesn't do interviews is what he said. And then uh, so, but he would ask me a question and then I'd answer it and he was doing his recon he was checking us out, making sure we weren't a bunch of yo-yos. And, and I think he's <laughs> confident enough. He said, you know what, I'll give you, give you Dr. Art Walt's email address. And then here we are. Right. You know, the, the progression and how you put all this together kind of makes me think like how the self-defense industry has changed because of your research it, it kind of like the medical industry's changed over the years where they used to think bloodletting was a, was a good thing. <laughs> and, and now it's progressed and they realize, eh, it probably wasn't the best way to do things and solve problems. And kind of the same thing back in the day, there was a lot of 
uh, misnomers, a lot of different things that were done differently in the industry back then. I mean, you just look at the way you'd hold a revolver back in the day, right? The cup and saucer and just things like that have, you know, progressed and moved forward based on all this collection of data that you've done. So it's, it's pretty fascinating to see that and, and how the body responds naturally is, is amazing. Well, it makes a lot of sense because, you know, prior to people like you going through this data, recording it and, and maybe uh, categorizing the different things that can happen and without the benefit of video cameras and surveillance cameras and all that, you'd say, hey, how did you fight? And like, I fought like I was trained, Sergeant. And it makes sense that that yeah. would be the response. But of course, we know that people don't remember what they did in many cases anyhow. So, uh, you know, being able to take and collate all that information, put it together. And then now that we see the video evidence too, to support all that has, has been very eye-opening. Right. And uh, the, when people say I responded uh, like I was trained, sometimes that's true and sometimes it's not. Mm. And sometimes they prevail in spite of their training. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, uh, self-preservation took over and they wound up doing something that may or may not been directly what they were trained to do. But the whole right, right. drive has been to try to make training a lot more scientific because we do have you know, a lot of information in sports psychology and adult learning and naturalistic decision-making. Uh, the problem has been that uh, some of the research, in fact, a lot of the research is published in academic journals and it never makes it to law enforcement or to the general population. And uh, so the a big push for me and other people like For Science Institute and others has been to uh, take that information, that research and bring it, put it into language that uh, police officers and the general public can understand and have them actually start using it and applying it right. uh, to actual training and to their operations. Yeah, I think uh, teaching law enforcement myself, being a law enforcement officer and instructor here in New York, uh, I, I always try to find creative ways to get across to officers, kind of like you alluded to, the you know, sitting back and crossing their arms and you don't know if it really I've really got through the, through that that thick skull in some cases, and uh, having things where you can you can give them that aha moment, and you say you know hey you know the, your your hands do this and this you know they're not designed to do this kind of stuff right? right and when the amygdala gets hijacked and then your neural pathways are 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 uh, activated whatever's hard coded in there that that response and nothing's in your hands or there's something in your hands how your body responds they're like oh wow I never thought of that way and then that starts opening them up to the possibility of, okay, I should, probably should learn the things that are going to be naturally what my body will do under extreme duress so I can survive the situation. Yeah, he, he, human body is an amazing thing. If we, you know, because of your work and, and you know, folks like, uh, well, Tony Blauer and, and uh, Lieutenant Colonel David Grossman, we now have a better idea of what the body actually does under stress. And so why not train the way we fight for real? And the neat thing about the video evidence that we've seen over the last couple of decades is yeah. soccer moms, gangbangers, trained law enforcement, untrained civilians all kind of fight the same way. And, and that's 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 what we've learned from that. Exactly. When I do uh, occasionally I do training to civilians and uh, when I give my talk, it's pretty much, you know, local stuff. I, I I'm retired from the training biz in terms I don't want to get on airplanes and travel all over the country mm -hmm. like I have been doing for 25 years that just got 
way too old. And as it turns out, I retired in the nick of time before the COVID infinity hit. Right. Uh, so, uh, but what I, I call my training for civilians is lessons learned from police combat. Mm, uh, nice. Because that's where a lot of the uh, research has been done. And uh, when I went in one time and was training, started to do some training for this one class, uh, this one guy was complaining, well, we're not cops. Why are we having this training? And I said, you're a human being. And the people who are behind the badge are human beings. And sure, there are some things about my book that are specific to law enforcement. But the vast majority of it is simply how human beings perform under life and death stress. How to survive. Yeah, and a lot of those those physiological changes under stress, I've found when, when training the civilians that I train, uh, if you equate it to things outside of, say, combat or outside of defense, just like someone having a car accident, hitting a deer or a, a heated argument or heck, just even watching people at a haunted house, even where they have a, a great deal of anticipation, we see a lot of the same, you know, body's natural reactions and things like that occur. And right. if we can make that connection. People are generally a little more apt to accept that that's very likely what will happen under the stress of a dynamic critical incident. Yeah, and what's also interesting, uh, and this is really, really important for people to understand for their legal survival as well, including investigators who are investigating these things, a lot of the stuff like selective attention, meaning that you think you're aware of everything around you, but in fact you are not, Uh, how your vision, your ability to see clearly is extremely narrow. Even if you're aware of things in your peripheral vision, you're not seeing them clearly. You think you are, but you're not. Yep. So we are far less aware of what's going on in our environment than we think we are. That is true 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It is not unique to a high-stress situation. All the um, memory issues that people have about these high-stress events, guess what? Your memory for everyday life sucks. <laughs> so people think they remember everything in detail and that these details are accurate. And... Tons of research shows that is simply not true. I believe that our brain is programmed to remember whether it's from a critical incident or everyday life, our uh, brain is programmed to remember the gist of the situation and our takeaway lesson for our future performance and especially for our future survival. Uh, it, It honestly doesn't really care that much about the details. And so because our brain doesn't really care about the details, it simply doesn't pay attention to them or doesn't register them, doesn't go through all the effort of trying to remember all of these details accurately. The bottom line is, what's the takeaway lesson? What generally happened and what's my takeaway lesson from this? Uh, So we have this uh, dysfunctional disconnect between how the brain actually works versus the demands of the criminal justice system which has this uh, bizarre notion that you're supposed to remember everything, mm-hmm. remember it in detail, and remember it very accurately. And then if you don't, uh, you're looked at as if you're lying, covering up, or some other issue is going on, when in fact that's just how the brain operates. 
Yeah, and that's compounded by, I mean, you alluded to it earlier as far as the, the legal aspect. If, if, if it's video recorded and you say something that you think might be right, mm-hmm. and then they re- play that against the video it's and it doesn't match up, well, you're a liar. And what else? We can't believe your testimony. So that's it's crucial in that case. And that's why they have like the four-part statement. You know, I was attacked by that person. That was a witness. There's the evidence. And I want my attorney. And then you shut the heck up. <laughs> exactly right. And, you know, our... Criminal criminal justice system is probably the best in the world. However, it's run by people, and people yeah, are fallible. Yep, very uh, true. And you know, I hope everyone's really paying a lot of attention to things like what happened to uh, Nick Sandman and the Covington High School scandal. We know for sure uh, that uh, he was maligned because uh, uh, media now has to pay him millions of dollars. So we know for sure, but there's also currently pending cases like the McCluskey's and Kyle Rittenhouse uh, in which all kinds of allegations are being made against both of all three of these individuals that I suspect in the long, based on my experience with law enforcement shootings, uh, I would be doing debriefings with officers. I would talk to people who were actually involved in the event uh, and I would have a very clear picture by piecing it all together, what they actually experienced and what some of the, the facts of the case actually are. And then I would read accounts in the media or hear it on TV or whatever. And I'm thinking, what, in, what the incident are they talking about? Because that's not even remotely close to what happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, when, and this is why we have too many cases in law enforcement and we have, uh, I'm sure there are plenty of civilian cases as well, where uh, the media or politicians blow the incident up into something far beyond what it actually was, yep. impugning the behavior and the motives of the uh, people who were in these desperate survival situations. Mm-hmm. Uh, they wind up perhaps getting indicted because of that. Uh, and then they wind up getting exonerated by a jury. And that, hap- that happens repeatedly because once the jury actually hears the facts, the facts yeah. they realize, okay, I, it's totally understandable why that person did what they did. Right. Well, so. too often the, the the reasoning for those cases to be pushed is the is the political aspect of it. I mean, we had we had Andrew Bronk on the show, and we were we ended up getting off onto a rabbit hole conversation about about the Zimmerman case, and and he had said, well, after all said and done that prosecutor won. And we're like, well, no, no, she didn't because the, she lost the cases. No, she did win because she got reelected. Like it was a high profile case. And one of the reasons she took that case on was so that she could win that election. So the politics plays. And unfortunately, that's something that a lot of law abiding citizens, concealed carriers don't consider that political damage that could take place in the jurisdiction where they live if they were to use a firearm to defend themselves or their family. Yeah, and of course, Thomas Wolfe wrote about this many years ago in his fabulous book, The Bonfire of the Vanities. If you haven't read that book, that's the whole premise of the book, is a guy gets involved in a critical incident and it completely destroys his life. Uh, And uh, so, yeah, people, they don't realize how fast their life can go right down the tubes based on a three-second event, whether you're a cop or you're a citizen. Uh, I don't want to create undue paranoia. Most of the time it goes reasonably well, uh, but that's why, of course, we all give people the advice, 
do not talk to the criminal justice system without having an attorney available uh, because you never know when you could wind up being uh, the uh, target of the media for their own political agendas, mm -hmm. malicious prosecution by uh, politically driven prosecutors. Yep. Uh, you could wind up getting civilly sued for damages by families who really don't care what the facts are. They just want your money or what they want revenge. So people just need to realize how vulnerable they are. And it doesn't have to be even involve a firearm. It could be uh, just virtually anything uh, that where you wind up getting into a situation and wind up having to defend yourself. What's that mindset of don't go to stupid places with stupid people at stupid times and do stupid things. And, you know, have, having a good mindset, trying not to be in the fight in the first place, you've got the criminal aspect, the civil aspect, and then the jury of public opinion. And that jury of public opinion sometimes could be worse than everything else. I mean, that's what George Zimmerman's reliving every day for the past yeah. eight years is that jury of public opinion. This is Sarah Joy Albrecht with Hold My Guns. And this is Meet the Pressers with Matt Mallory and Clint Macro. Meet the Pressers. Yeah, so I have to... You know, 100% agree that uh, your best bet for your physical, legal, and emotional survival is to never get into a confrontation in the first place. Yep. And that's why my book, one of the earliest chapters, is on mindset. And there's a, I talk about four different mindsets. One is survival mindset, which means that you are situationally aware, you're aware of your surroundings. And when you see danger coming, avoid it. Yeah. Uh, you know, you should not be interjecting yourself into a confrontation or a violent situation uh, unless you absolutely have no other choice. So if you're in a parking lot and you see an altercation going on, call 911 and let the yeah. professionals handle it. Um, the other, another very important mindset to master is the calmness mindset. Mm -hmm. And uh, that unfortunately is sorely lacking in too many people. And this includes calmness in the face of provocation. Yeah. So you're just kind of wandering around minding your own business and someone starts getting in your face for whatever reason. You have to master the ability just to very cool, calm and collected and, and walk away or attempt to de-escalate de the situation. Don't let your emotions take over. You have to keep your brain engaged. You have to keep problem solving. You yep. have to constantly be thinking, how can I get myself out of this situation? How can I de-escalate? Uh, and if God forbid, it should actually turn into a self-defense situation because you can't get away from the danger. Hopefully you will also continue to be able to problem solve during that as well. Another really important mindset to master for your personal safety is the unconditional respect mindset, mm -hmm. uh, meaning that you treat every person that you encounter uh, in a respectful manner, because as soon as you start, uh, you know, giving into the urge to meet insult with insult, uh, then that's when a situation is going to escalate. And this is especially true for bad guys, because a lot of these bad guys are very self-centered. They're often very emotionally mature. They often have very poor impulse control. And although their behavior may demand the least respect of all, uh, ironically, they are often the most demanding of, you know, don't disrespect me, dude. Uh, you don't want to get sucked into that uh, craziness. Right. So no matter how 
bad they're acting, you want to stay in a respect mindset. And people say, well, you know what? They provoked me or they were being an asshole. And I'm thinking, okay, what I tell people is, you know, treating other people with respect, it's not about them. It's about you. Yeah. To stay calm and always uh, treat people like you would want to be treated, no matter how they're acting. Very true. Uh, now, if everybody could master those three mindsets or was willing to, to master those mindsets, we wouldn't need cops. <laughs> Touche. <laughs> uh, as we know, although most people live by these golden rules, uh, there is a certain subset of people that don't. And that's where we wind up uh, feeling the need to uh, arm ourselves or engage in other self-defense behaviors. And that brings me to the fourth mindset, which is the warrior mindset. And I'm using, I know that the warrior mindset is really kind of overused to describe fighting against whatever, you know, I'm a warrior against cancer and so on. So yeah. yep. that's fine, but I'm using it in a very specific definition today, which is the warrior mindset is the uh, acknowledgement and the willingness that I am willing to use force, including potentially lethal force to protect myself or potentially to defend another person. Now, this, the, this is an optional mindset, uh, obviously. It's not optional for some people. It's not optional for officers. Officers must have the warrior mindset in order to be able to do their job. And in fact, they are uh, there because most of us don't want to be in a warrior mindset. Most of us- Right, uh, shelter. Really, we want to farm it out to the officers. We want we have decided, you know what, that's scary. Uh, it's unpleasant. It can traumatize me. I don't want to go there. I'm going to call 911 and professional warriors are going to come in and take care of business for me. However, if you are going to be a concealed carry permit holder and go around armed, you really need to be asking yourself, are you ready to go into the warrior mindset? Yeah. And that's important, not just for, to survive the situation, uh, but also for your for your emotional survival in the aftermath. That mindset I usually will say to my students is if you're going to carry a gun, you have to have the mindset to, to use the gun. And you'll hear like, I make the joke that you'll hear a cop in the 80s say, if you pull the gun out, um, you got to use it. And that's not the case. It's if you pull the gun out, be prepared to use it, right? right. You're not going to stand there pointing the gun at a bad guy and saying, no, please don't stab me. No, stop stabbing me. No, no, don't take my gun. No, please don't take my gun. No, no, please don't shoot me with my gun. When are you going to, when are you going to stop the threat? So if you carry the gun, have the mindset to use it because if you if you can't bring yourself to use the gun to stop somebody from causing you death or great bodily harm they're probably going to use it on you and you've basically given the bad guy a gun exactly right uh, so i i totally agree that uh there are you know i i, I do concealed carry quite honestly i wish i didn't have to yeah. i mean shooting sports are fun i enjoy going to the range and you know learning mm -hmm. about firearms and so on and so forth but i honestly wish i didn't feel the need to carry a weapon with me because it's a huge responsibility. Yep. You have to constantly be aware that you are armed. Or what are you going to do with it? Mm -hmm. um, you have to you know, find a safe place to lock it up in your vehicle if you're yep. not allowed to carry it into the doctor's office and so on and so forth. And I, there are probably days when I, I choose not to just go through that hassle, quite frankly, or I'm going to a place where I know uh, it's going to be uh, not allowed, so on and so forth. Uh, so. However, uh, 
if I am carrying that gun, I mentally rehearse. Every time I walk out the door with that gun, I mentally rehearse. I am armed and I'm going to be prepared to deal with the consequences of using it if I'm approaching. And the only reason I carry is because I've had a couple of close calls yeah, uh, where yeah. I felt threatened and uh, being a small elderly female, I'm highly vulnerable and I did not like that. The FBI did some really great research on uh, officers, uh, bad guys, and the circumstances that brought them together. And they call it the deadly mix that resulted in the assault and or homicide of a police officer. And uh, what they found was, and they, they went in, they were interested in the mindset of the officers and the mindset and thinking process of the predators who preyed on the officers. Uh, they went into prisons and interviewed. Now, you know, there are some situations where people are mentally ill or it's a domestic violence situation mm -hmm. where you might an officer might get assaulted by someone who ordinarily maybe wouldn't go after an officer. But a lot of the assaults happen with these career criminals who are basically psychopaths uh, who are just out to mm -hmm. kill a cop or assault a cop or I'm, you're not taking me back to jail or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so they, they make a very definite predatory decision to go after this officer. And uh, so they went to the prisons and interviewed these predatory psychopaths, uh, the, the kind of people that most of us are genuinely afraid of, including police officers need to be wary of. Yeah. And then they said, okay, well, why did you choose that particular cop on that particular day to assault? And the answer frequently was because I sensed weakness. Even yeah. an armed police officer in uniform, they sense okay. some kind of weakness. The officer seemed unsure of him or herself, or uh, they looked like they weren't in very good physical condition, like they mm -hmm. didn't take training seriously, they looked sloppy, they weren't paying attention, whatever. And that's one of the things that triggered the assault. And part of the warrior mindset is simply walking about with confidence and uh, projecting to criminals, and this is true whether you're a little old lady who doesn't have a gun in her purse or you're a police officer, you're, you're projecting to the predators out there, I'm paying attention, I see you, don't mess with me because I'm either gonna call 911 or I'm gonna get out my pepper spray or I'm gonna fight you or I'm gonna do whatever. Uh, and predators are looking typically for the easier prey most of the time. And uh, I have, even though I'm a little old lady, I have um, stopped at least three people from approaching me that I was sure were up to no good. Wow. Uh, simply because I looked them in the eye when they were about 20 feet away. I simply, and, I, and I've rehearsed this in my mind many times, I, uh, I saw them, I typically putting groceries in my car or otherwise preoccupied. I stop what I'm doing, I turn around and face them not in a provocative or hostile way, obviously, with unconditional respect. And I uh, take one little step forward. I put my hand up like this and I yell out in a very, very loud voice, no thanks, I'm good. And that usually takes them by surprise. And I choose those words deliberately uh, to uh, not be provocative. It's like, get away from me, you asshole. You, know, you don't mm -hmm. want to do that. You don't right. want to provoke people. Yep. Uh, so I'm just letting them know. I, I'm assuming you're coming over to help me, uh, but I really don't need any help. And furthermore, the sub message is, you know, look, I know what you're up to. And right. don't come over here and ask me what time it is and use that as a pretext to right. do whatever you're going to do. Yeah. Uh, so uh, what the FBI said, and these are, this is their quote, 
regarding officers who might be assaulted and or killed by a bad guy, their quote is, their demeanor can protect them as much as their weapons and their body armor. Mm-hmm. So the warrior mindset is, isn't about carrying a gun. It's not about how many weapons you have on you. It can be adopted by police officers, soldiers, little old ladies. It's really about paying attention, uh, letting the bad guys know that you're aware of them yep. and letting them know that you're not going to be a helpless victim. Uh, it could be something simple as, uh, I see you over there. I just want you to know that I'm calling 911. Mm-hmm. Uh, whatever it is, and you, and you want to rehearse this in your mind, you, it's really important to be prepared and have a plan. Uh, so when I'm taking my groceries out to my car, all, all my close calls have been in parking lots where the predators are, I call it the predator hunting ground. Uh, and you know, typically they go after people uh, who are distracted by putting groceries in their car or whatever. And every time I walk out, not only am I looking around, but I'm mentally rehearsing if I see someone approaching me, what am I going to do? And I'm you know, mentally rehearsing, my pepper spray is here. Uh, here's how I access my weapon if I'm carrying that day. Uh, this is what I'm going to do. This is what I'm gonna say. Everything is very much planned. Um, so my first thing is you know, hand up and the stop, eye contact. Yep. Uh, no thanks, I'm good in a very loud voice, which is of course is gonna attract attention. Yeah. don't like that. Yep. Uh, but I've also re- rehearsed in my mind, if that doesn't work, what's my next step? Yeah. Um, so it's really about uh, mental rehearsal, training yourself, uh, and you know, just the determination. I'm, I'm gonna avoid trouble if, if at all possible, but if trouble's coming at me, I have a plan. The book from the 90s to the current updated uh, version now, what's changed from your experience and your research over the years? What, what was a big, like, oh, wow, we maybe not so much got that wrong, but, but uh, it, we've evolved as a society or criminals have evolved, et cetera. What, what things have changed over the time that, uh, that would uh, if somebody's read the book back then that you might want to push them to read the book again or the new version of the book to be able to get that uh that new thought process or that new mind mindset uh well the uh there's been more and more research on um human performance factors as they specifically apply to deadly force encounters much of the research has been done with uh law enforcement mm-hmm. uh, but it's pretty much human performance issues that apply to anybody. So there is a, uh, a lot more research. Really, none of my conclusions in 1997 were, are different. Uh, it's just that there's a lot more research. I think my original book was a little over 200 pages. My current book is 550 pages. Wow. And it's heavily researched. I mean, uh, some of the things like the four mindsets are you know, my personal observations, but the vast majority of the book is a lot of research. And I think uh, approaching this as a behavioral scientist is important because you need to know, the reader, uh, that this is based on well-done research and is not just my personal opinion about this is how the world is. Right. So uh, there, there's a lot more research backing things up. And uh, there is a chapter on uh, racial bias in police work. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, now, keep in mind, this is before all of this recent insanity started this past year. And uh, that's, a, that's a, a touchy topic to address. 
Uh, I was a little reluctant to jump into that uh, because, uh, you know, it's so controversial and, you know, there are a lot of feelings about it and so on and so forth. But the research is extremely clear. 40 years of research has shown over and over and over and over again. It's all, you know, all the research references can be uh, explored on your own. All the references are in the book uh, that uh, police are not racially biased in their use of force. That is simply not true. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so I really addressed a whole chapter on racial bias and policing and just uh, racial bias in general. Uh, and, you know, I was a little reluctant to write the chapter, just like, okay, you know, do I really want to get into this and get hate mail and so on and so forth? But I thought it was very important to present the facts. It's not my personal opinion. It's the facts uh, as presented. And uh, now, so the book was published in uh, December 2019. And just a few months later, this whole police are racial thing has just absolutely exploded. And so actually, I'm really glad that I did write that chapter. I really hope that uh, people who are open-minded will read the chapter and come to understand uh, that this whole police are racist and hunting down uh, black men just because of the color of their skin is just a bunch of BS. It's it's been true for many, many years and uh, is really causing far more harm to our society than any kind of good. Yep, very true. Well, we thank you for the work that you've done in the original book and, and in the updated book and everything else that you've been involved with over the years. I, I can definitely say as an educator myself, uh, the information that you put out in that first book was life-changing. It, it changed the way I thought about things and, and how I perceived what the body does naturally under stress and, and about the advice I might give or, or the techniques I might train my students. So Uh, I certainly, uh, I think I can speak for a lot of instructors. Thank you very much. I really appreciate the feedback, Clint. And, you know, that's, that's why I wrote the book. You know, you you don't make any money writing books, you know, know, peanuts on the book, especially, and it was a huge amount of work. Yeah. Uh, So the reason I wrote the second, well, I wrote the first edition because the officers urged me to. And then the reason I wrote the second edition, because the first edition went out of print and Lauren said, well, it's going out of print. What do you think? Should we just let it die a natural death? And I, and I said, no, I, I want to write a second edition. And the reason I did is that uh, over the past 20 years, as I've gone to conferences and other places, mm-hmm. people like you, so usually police officers, have come up to me and said, uh, I just want you to know that I was involved in an incident five years ago, and your book really made a big difference in my life. And I really appreciate you putting that information out there. So that's that's why I wrote. It's a labor of love, wanting to be there for all the officers and now citizens yep. uh, who may or may not have access to this information otherwise. So Clint, thank you very, very much for letting me know. Uh, you know, you just made my day because that's why I wrote it. I want to help people. It's awesome. Oh, excellent. Excellent. Well, we thank you for coming on the show. And, and anytime you want to come on and talk about anything, it's just think of it as a home away from home. Okay. Thank you very much, guys. Thanks for coming on. We really appreciate it. Yeah, you bet. Hello, my name is Clint Macro, founder of the Trigger Pressers Union. I'm very honored to be among the 30 speakers who are going to speak at the virtual rally that's taking place October 24th.
I think it's a wonderful thing that so many Americans are realizing what the Second Amendment means to them. There are millions of people who were not exercising their Second Amendment rights six months ago that are now, and I welcome you all into the fold. It's important to recognize that as Americans, we have many rights. Some people exercise them, some people don't, but those rights are there for us when we need them. They need to be protected. So as we move into this election season, my best advice is to make sure that you vet the candidates that you're voting for. Make sure that they will protect your individual rights and liberties, most chiefly your right to defend yourselves and those that you love. So join me on October 24th, 2020, as we have the virtual rally, and we'll see you there. There's lots of sponsors that make this show possible, like Mountain Man Medical. Check them out and give them your business. This episode is brought to you by Mountain Man Medical. The right medical training and gear should be accessible to every American. Mantis. Mantis X helps shooters suck less. Meet the Pressers is sponsored by Next Level Training, Saber Red, Cutting Edge Bullets, the USCCA, ASP, Common Sense Self-Defense, and T1 Ammunition. Meet the Pressers is also generously supported by other fine companies, ranges, and our Patreon members. Thank you. Thanks for watching or listening to our show. Make sure to like, comment, subscribe, share, click that little bell thingy so you know when the next episode's uploaded. Support us on Patreon. Come to one of our classes. Host us to come to you and do one of our classes at your location. And until next time, adieu. Thank you for watching Meet the Pressers.